Psalm 98. Hear now the word of the living God. O sing unto the Lord a new song. For he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly shown in the sight of the heathen. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Make a loud noise and rejoice and sing praise. Sing unto the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the voice of a psalm. With trumpets and sound of a cornet, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he cometh to judge the earth, with righteousness shall he judge the world, and the people with equity. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we do come before thee tonight and we do ask for thy blessing upon the preaching of thy word and upon the hearing of thy word. Lord, we confess that we as your people are often prone to forget the things that you've commanded us to do. And we ask, O Lord, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us insight into the truths of thy word. And I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So we come to Psalm 98 this evening. Um, one that is just simply entitled Psalm. Here we have a beautiful and sweet psalm that celebrates the king of Israel. We've seen in this fourth book of the Psalter a number of psalms, a series of psalms that celebrate Jehovah as king. We saw there in Psalm 93 that the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. We've seen in Psalm 94 that vengeance belongs to our God. We see in Psalm 95 that there's a call to worship, to come and to sing. We see in Psalm 96 that the, we're to sing unto the Lord a new song. Psalm 97 says the earth is to rejoice because the Lord reigns. And now we come to Psalm 98. Very similar psalm to Psalm 96 where the psalmist calls us to sing unto the Lord a new song. Celebration, perhaps one of Israel's feasts, is what the psalmist has in mind. We don't know who the psalm writer is, perhaps David. We don't know necessarily the occasion. But the psalmist here calls the people of God to rejoice before the Lord. So during one of those feasts of Israel... The people came together to celebrate and to give praise unto God. And so we see a similar grouping of these particular psalms that's a call to worship the living God. It's simply titled a psalm. 
the psalm that is to be used in worship of the people of God, a psalm that is to be sung. It is similar to the song of Moses. It is similar to many other psalms that we see scattered throughout the Old Testament. Ironically, in the Book of Common Prayer that is used in the Anglican Church, Psalm 98 and Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55 are side by side in the evening prayer that is used in the church's worship. And in Luke chapter 1 verses 46 through 55, you see Mary's song known as the Magnificat, which means my soul magnifies the Lord. That particular song of Mary is identical to Psalm 98, and some would say that Luke chapter 1 is a fulfillment of this psalm. But here as we consider the psalm before us tonight, Charles Spurgeon calls this particular psalm the coronation hymn because it declares that Jesus Christ is the church's king. And so it celebrates the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come to understand a little bit about what the psalmist is talking about here, we begin there in verses 1 through 3 with this exhortation that is given to the church to rejoice and to give praise to Him for His salvation. He begins there and calls the church, O sing unto the Lord a new song, for He hath done marvelous things. The church is called and exhorted to worship and praise our God for the salvation that He has given unto us. There in verse 1 it says, O sing to the Lord a new song. We saw in Psalm 96, O sing unto the Lord a new song. And when he talks there about the new song, he's talking about the fact that there's a new era coming, that there's a new age coming in the church in which she will sing that new song, that song of redemption. As you go back to Miriam and Moses there in the Old Testament singing their victory song, as they're celebrating the deliverance from Egypt, as they're celebrating the great mercies that the Lord has shown to them, they sing that glorious song that is called a new song. So here, the church under the old administration is called to sing a new song. Because it is the song that tells of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've said this before, and and as I work my way through the Psalter, and as we look more at these Psalms, I'm more and more convinced that the majority of the Psalms speak of the Lord Jesus Christ and speak of the duties that the church has toward this King. Now we're not predisposed toward thinking that because why would we see the Lord Jesus Christ in these psalms that doesn't mention his name? And yet oftentimes you see the word Jehovah used in many of these psalms or in this particular psalm the word Lord is used indicating that the word Jehovah signifies the God who is the I Am. The God who has revealed himself as the one who has come to redeem his people. And we see all throughout the gospel 
of John, that Jesus calls himself the great I am, that he is God who has taken on flesh, that he might show his salvation unto his people. And so the church is called to sing that new song. There are five reasons here in verses 1 through 3 that the psalmist calls the church to give praise and to rejoice before her king. The first reason is that he has done the glorious work of salvation. And so he says, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. That new song, speaking of the glorious age of the church, speaking of that messianic kingdom that is to come, Christ is the object of this psalm. He is the one who brings salvation to his people. He is the one who hath done marvelous things. And when the psalmist uses that phrase marvelous things, it speaks of all of the wonderful things that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for his people when it comes to their salvation. And so he speaks of those marvelous things. He, he lays out for us those marvelous things that the Lord Jesus Christ has done. We see many of those marvelous things throughout the history of Israel. We see the extraordinary working of God. We see the miraculous signs of God's grace and power. We see the great mercy of the Lord our God throughout all of redemptive history. As you look in Psalm or Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 10, Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 10. Actually, if you go back to verse 9, it says, Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Israel who was led into the wilderness. Israel who had been led away because of a rebellion. As she was cast as a wanderer in the desert. Here we find that the Lord has brought her from those waste places and has brought comfort to his people and has redeemed his people. And so the call is for the, the people to break forth into joy, to remember that God hath comforted his people with this glorious promise of salvation. And so these are the marvelous things that he has done. Even in the book of Exodus, we see many the miraculous signs that the Lord did in the presence of His people. Showing those wonderful and marvelous things that God has done for His people. And we see those as past things oftentimes. I think this is the, the danger sometimes that we have to, to remember that redemptive history is not just looking at history as it happened. Redemptive history is looking at what God has done and to continue to see what God is doing in the midst of his people. That's why the people of God are called to witness and to testify of the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done in your life? What has he done in my life? What marvelous things has he done? We are called to testify of that continuing work of God's grace. But Israel had those reminders before them. So he says that we are to sing for joy because of the glorious work 
of salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ has done those marvelous things. But secondly, not only do we see the glorious work of salvation, but we see that he has done his work by the conflict with his enemies. We saw that this morning in Luke chapter 13, that the Lord Jesus Christ was constantly in conflict. And even in the church today, the work of Satan is a continual conflict with the church. And so we see that the Lord Jesus Christ, by his work, has brought victory to his people. That he is in that work of conflict. That is one of the things that the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. His cross work was a work of destruction. It was a work of destroying the kingdom of Satan. And so we see here that his holy arm, and that picture there that is used oftentimes in the Old Testament of giving imagery to God as having arms or hands to indicate that by his arm, by his power, by his strength, he has gotten for him the victory. Now notice the text says that his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ that took the victory. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that conquered the work of Satan, that conquered all of his enemies. And as he conquered not only the work of Satan, but as he conquered all of his enemies in his death, the scripture tells us that there's one enemy yet to be conquered, and that is death. And for all of us as believers, we look forward to that day when death will be vanquished. But in that work of salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ has gained for himself victory by defeating his enemies, by with his arms stretched out upon the cross, bringing the work of destruction to the kingdom of Satan. Friends, we must begin to think about the fact that we have an enemy that wars constantly against our souls and we need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ has gained victory for His people. But thirdly, we see there in verse 2, another reason for this glorious work is because He has preached salvation to the nations. Notice there in verse 2, The Lord hath made known his salvation. He has made known his righteousness openly in the sight of the heathen. Now this is difficult for us to understand. How is it that the Lord has revealed or shown forth his salvation to the nations, to the heathen particularly? Well, we see that as the gospel goes forth to the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth will see his salvation. The Gentiles particularly testify to the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has given them salvation, has delivered them from the power of sin and death. And so as he works his salvation, he openly shows that salvation before the heathen nations. And when the gospel advances, when the kingdoms of earth are conquered by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, That salvation is openly declared to the nations. And that's why there's this conflict. Even in our own nation. That's why there's this turmoil. 
As we heard this morning, the reason that the nations fight against biblical marriage is because it goes contrary to their worldview. It goes contrary to what they believe because it is the Lord Jesus Christ that upholds that. And it is the nations that despise him and his gospel. And yet the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ is openly declared. It is uncovered before the heathen nations. And so when the gospel comes to Afghanistan, when the gospel comes to Iran, when the gospel comes to Iraq, when the gospel comes to China, the nations see the influence of the gospel. And we must see and understand the influence of the gospel in our own age. We must never be ashamed of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must never be ashamed to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. John Piper in that wonderful book, one of his books that I have really appreciated over the years, Let the Nations Be Glad. In there he states that it is the the worship of the church that drives the mission enterprise of the church. It is the worship of God's people that calls us to go to the nations and declare his glorious salvation. And so we see that salvation preached. Fourthly, we see the fulfillment of his promises to Israel. This is another aspect of the praise that we are called to give because of the promises that he has given to Israel. He hath remembered his mercy and his truth toward the house of Israel. Wait a minute, does God have a lapse of memory? Does God not remember what he has done? There that word remember is an action word. It signifies that he has considered his covenant faithfulness. That he has taken action to show mercy and truth. God's faithfulness, the promises that he has made, are always connected to his covenant to his loyalty, to his love, to his trustworthiness, to his faithfulness. You know, we can all testify to the fact that there are times when when someone is unfaithful or when someone cannot be trusted. But it is said of Israel's God that he showed mercy and truth. That he is to be trustworthy. That he is to be, that he is faithful. That he has remembered all of the promises that he has made. And here lies, herein lies the, the truth of the gospel. That even to Israel under the old covenant. God fulfilled his promises to them. That God will fulfill his promises to us and to our children. And so we remember the truth and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ in showing His faithfulness and His promises. Fifthly and finally we see that we are to give praise to this God. Because He has made or caused the earth to see His salvation. There at the end of verse 3. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. 
Here's where our eschatology comes in. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. It doesn't say that they will see the salvation of God in some future age. It says they have seen the salvation of our God. They have seen the workings of God. And so for the people of God under the Old Testament, the salvation of God had been seen. And now as this psalm is written about the mercy and the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's declared openly that He is Israel's King. That He is the one who brings salvation. And so we see there in verses 4 through 6, a repetition of what we've seen in verses 1 through 3. This is oftentimes something you'll see in Hebrew poetry. Something you see in poetry, something you you see in music, there'll be a repetition or a refrain. Sing sing unto the Lord a new song, verse 1. And now verse 4, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. Notice it says that all the earth is to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. That is a universal statement that simply indicates that every nation, every tribe under heaven will become the disciples of this king and therefore they will make joyful noise. When it speaks of the earth, it's speaking of all the tribes of Israel. It's speaking of all those territories and nations where the people of God came together, where they understood the work of God in their midst. Now remember the church under the Old Testament economy looked for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so under the Old Testament sacrificial system, in the Old Testament temple, there were the sacrifices that were offered. We don't offer those sacrifices anymore. There were the instruments. All of those under the ceremonial law prefigured the worship of the New Testament saints. And so as we see here that we're called to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. I said before, and I think it's worth repeating, one of our Presbyterian forefathers indicated that in the sacramental system under Israel's worship, the only time they used instruments was when animals were sacrificed. They used instruments to drown out the bleeding and the sound of the lamb as the blood was being poured out, as the lamb was being slaughtered. The instruments would drown out the noise. But here as the psalmist calls Israel under the old covenant to make a joyful noise, to sing. He says there that they are to sing with the harp, with the voice of a psalm, with trumpets and sound of cornet. Make a joyful noise before the king. But notice there in verse 5 that they are to use the voice to utter the psalm. To utter those words as they declare their voices before the Lord. Now notice here in the text, here toward the end, it shows that they were to make what? A joyful noise. They were to make a loud noise. 
There is nothing more astounding to me than to be in an assembly, and it's been usually among men in a, uh, a senate or a general assembly, to hear over thousand voices praising God and uttering their voices unto Him. And so this joyful noise that we are to make comes from where? It comes from our mouths. It comes from our lips. We're called to give praise unto this God. We are called to make that joyful noise before the Lord, the King. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who wants to hear the sound of our voices. Oh, well, Pastor, you've never heard me sing. You've never heard my wife sing. <laughs> and yet sometimes that can become an easy excuse. It's often encouraging to hear children making the loud, joyful noise. But we're called to make that joyous noise. When one person sings and another person joins in and then two or three more join in and all of us are making that joyful noise then we are bringing that praise and that adoration and that call to worship that comes before the King. The joyful noise, the praises of God's people doesn't come before me and you. It comes before the Lord. He is the one who has asked us to give Him praise, to sound His praises within the assembly of the saints. And so here is the call, again, for the church to give praise unto this God. And then the psalmist concludes by calling all of creation, exhorting all of creation to give praise to this God. Praise is not only for the crown of God's creation, which is us, which is humans, but praise is to be resounded by all acts of nature. And this is where sometimes we read verses 7 and 8 and we think, oh, that's just some kind of hyperbole language. You don't really envision the trees of the field clapping their hands. You don't envision the floods clapping their hands. And yet, in the context of the psalm, the psalmist says, let the sea roar. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. Everything that God has created was created to give Him glory. That hurricane, sadly, as it did a lot of damage in southwestern Florida here a few months ago, we've seen... Uh, devastation from hurricanes when we live down there even though that is is a horrible thing for many people it's a reminder that that is giving praise unto God and so the psalmist concludes with this wonderful refrain let the sea roar as you hear the roaring of the sea it's giving worship unto God because he's created it for his purpose He's calling the world and those that dwell therein to give Him praise. He says, let the, uh, let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together. And so here is 
the, the picture of all the continents of the earth and all the elements of nature giving praise unto God. And so the clapping of the hands, the clapping of the floods of the earth is a figure of speech for the blessing that God's coming brings to creation. We go back to chapter 96, <coughs> verses 11 through 12. Let the nations rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and the fullness thereof. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. And then shall the trees of the woods rejoice before the coming of the Lord. And here, as it uses this figure of speech to declare that all of the wonderful things that the Lord God has created brings forth His glory. In the midst of a fallen and chaotic world, God's glory is not interrupted. In all of the chaos of a world that is hostile and is opposed to the kingdom of God, the Lord's glory shines forth in all of His creation. We need to, to see the elements of nature. We need to see all of these things within nature to show that the Lord God is King and He is to be worshipped. And then he concludes by saying, Let them be joyful together before the Lord, for He cometh to judge the earth With righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. The reason we are to rejoice, the reason that we are to give glory and worship to this king is because he's coming. For Israel, they were looking forward to his coming and he did come. And so here it speaks of the fact that when the Lord comes, he comes to judge the earth. And he did come as we saw in Luke Chapter 13, He came to judge the earth. He came to bring righteousness as He judged the earth. But as the King comes, as Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ, came to earth, He came to earth to govern and to rule within the courts of His church. And so the work of governing, The work of ruling within the church is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when He comes in righteousness and judgment, He comes to the church. He comes to the church to show that He is her King. That He is to be worshipped. That He is the God who indeed calls us to worship and to give praise unto Him. Oh, we see the glorious work of God's salvation. It is to be celebrated. It is to be celebrated not just by a few little people who are kind of isolated over here in a corner, but it's to be celebrated by all the nations of the earth. And so all creation will be filled with the praise of this king. So the question is, what does this have to do with evangelism? What does this have to do with the missionary enterprise of the church? It has a lot to do with it. Because if in God's economy, if the nations of the earth are the object of His salvation, then where do we send missionaries? 
to Africa, to Asia, to all the continents of the earth, so that when the Lord Jesus Christ, all the nations will receive Him as their King. It doesn't mean that every person will ultimately be saved. We do not believe in that. But we do believe that the work of salvation is a universal work that is to encompass all the nations of the earth. And so friends, the King is coming again. The Lord Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And for us as believers that will be a glorious day. The advent of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of this age will be far more glorious than our death. Our death is just a temporary resting of the soul. But on that glorious day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns and body and soul are united together and we stand before this King, that will be more glorious than anything we've ever seen in all the earth. But that calls us to give Him worship. So saints of God, let us go forth with that song of joy in our hearts to give praise and worship to this King who indeed is worthy. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give Thee thanks for the glorious work of Your salvation. We thank You for what You have done for us in creation. That You have made all things out of nothing. That in Your providence You preserve and govern all of Your creatures and all of their actions. And that in Your redemption, a glorious work of delivering Your people out of the bondage of sin and misery, You have promised that you will deliver us from the power of death one day. So we consider all of your great works, all of your marvelous works. We do ask that you would be glorified, that you would give us a renewed sense of worship and praise as we come before thee. We pray that we might loudly broadcast to all the nations of the earth that the Lord Jesus Christ is King. Receive our worship and our praise unto thee this night. And may you be exalted among the nations. We ask in your most glorious name. Amen.